a brand new episode of People Are Wild with me, your host, Kim, your friendly neighborhood ER nurse, coming at you from every side, side, side. 10 points to whoever gets that reference. That's like a really specific reference. But if you get it, give me a shout out because I'll be very impressed. And it's not in reference to a Jason Derulo song, which by the way, I have to laugh like exponentially hard Whenever I hear a song and you hear the artist say their name in the middle of the song or somewhere in the hook, like Pitbull does it a lot, Jason Derulo does it a lot, and then you get that air horn succession, you know what I'm talking about, when it's like, pow, 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 like that thing. Are they just, are they doing that to be their own hype person? Because I can actually respect that. Like, I sometimes wish that I had a hype person for when I'm at work and in the middle of getting myself psyched up to do a procedure, especially if it's something I don't really enjoy doing, looking at you, NG tube insertion and enemas, or like in the middle of like a doctor performing a central line insertion, like we all take a pause and then all of a sudden just do like a hype man sort of thing, like Lil John. That would probably not go over well actually thinking about it. I'm not going to try that out. I might try that out. Now, before I make more questionable choices into my professional life, I need to focus up, focus in, let's get it going. Let's get right into this week's episode. I'm going kind of hard, kind of fast because it's a bit of a doozy and this one is a longer episode. So I have lit my Edie Falco prayer candle. It's a very versatile aroma that it produces. And I've listened to Bon Jovi's Blaze of Glory on a loop repeat for about an hour. So I'm ready if you're ready to talk about how people are wild. Karen is a skilled emergency department nurse in a hospital that treats a large number of trauma victims. However, in her personal life, she is struggling with issues of grief and loneliness and feels like work is therapy because she can forget about all that for a little while. Now, one day she accidentally came home with a discarded opioid in her pocket. Now, she's an expert on administering pain medication to others. After all, she works in the emergency room, and she has witnessed the relief in her patients many times over whenever she administers those drugs. Now that night, she's tired, and she's too wound up to really sleep. Her mind just keeps racing and going over things. So she thinks that there might not be any harm in self-administering the morphine just this one time to provide relief and some much-needed sleep. And she tells herself she's not going to do it again. Just this one time. So a week later, Karen finds herself with a narcotic in her possession, and this time she purposely takes it home to self-inject. Oh yes, Karen was shooting up that morphine. She works in an ER after all. She knows the best way to get instant satisfaction, and when it hits that bloodstream, it's instantaneous relief. Now, within a short period of time, she is diverting on a regular basis and realizes she will experience withdrawal unless she injects regularly. So Karen finds herself working extra shifts, volunteering to medicate co-workers' patients who need pain medicines as ordered, and isolating from other staff members in order to procure and use the drugs. Now, fellow nurses in the ER recognize that something is wrong, but knowing how highly charged the department environment is, 
they just assume she's just under a lot of stress. Anne happens to be the nurse manager in this particular emergency department, and she just so happened to have conducted an in-service on substance use disorder in nursing about a week ago, where she explained the signs and symptoms of a nurse with this chronic but treatable illness. Anne reminded the nursing staff that, according to their state's Nurse Practice Act, they have a legal responsibility to report nurses suspected of substance use disorder to the nurse manager, in addition to an ethical responsibility to help fellow nurses and protect patients. Now, Anne concluded this in-service by reminding the team of her confidential open-door policy. Now, several days later, William, a fellow ER nurse, approached Anne to express his concern about one of his colleagues, Karen. Now, according to William, Karen had been acting differently lately. The normally cheerful and reliable person has been quite distant and withdrawn. Karen is often short-tempered and forgetful, yet she seems to pay extra attention to patients who have been ordered pain medication. Now, William first thought that working in a busy ER was too stressful for Karen, but after having attended Anne's in-service, he's not so sure anymore. He realizes that speaking up is the right thing to do. Immediately, Anne completes an audit of the unit's medication records. Now, during her investigation of the medication records for Karen's patients specifically, she discovers numerous discrepancies and falsified medication reports. Anne questions Karen about her performance and behavior. This wasn't the Karen that had started out when she was first hired on. Karen initially denied that she had any sort of problem, but when confronted with the cold hard evidence of her impaired practice, Karen emotionally and tearfully disclosed her substance use disorder. The hospital recommended treatment, describing her options, and that she may be eligible to return to work once she successfully completed a treatment program. And Karen agrees to an employee assistance program, or at least an alternative to discipline program with random monitoring and aftercare. Now, per hospital policy, Anne notifies her supervisor and appropriate hospital staff. Karen is immediately removed from practice to receive treatment. A report is made to the Board of Nursing. And after completion of her initial treatment, Karen is able to return to work. Anne functions as the worksite monitor when Karen returns to work. The worksite monitor role ensures that the practice restrictions and reporting requirements are followed. Anne also offers Karen a positive environment to assist her in successfully completing her transition to the workplace. So that story is an example that is used for educational purposes in talking about substance use uh, in nursing. It's actually what we as nurses get trained on during in-services and sessions um, a lot of times during those um, mandatory meetings that you have to go to. Most staff meetings that I go to, I don't necessarily pay full attention to, but um, when it comes to substance use disorders, this is a topic that I have paid special attention to for various reasons. But by the way, make more staff meetings friendlier for night shift people, okay? Whoever's listening out there that does sort of staff meetings or anything hospital-related in that respect. I will always respect facilities that have different meeting times or just email out the highlights of a meeting and you just click to say you acknowledge that these things, you've read them and that you acknowledge the policy changes or whatever. This is 2018. Night shifters need sleep and emails. Thank you very much. I am off of my soapbox, but not completely. Now, my friends, it's time to shine a light on a subject that 
is sort of in the shadows with regard to healthcare, and maybe some of you who are outside of healthcare don't even quite know about. It's the unknown side of healthcare that shows that Nurse Jackie or House use as part of their character traits, I guess. But while that's Hollywood make-believe, the truth of substance use, specifically in nursing, which is what I'm going to talk about, and impaired nurses, is probably going to surprise you. So it's the dirty little secret, if you will, about nursing. The American Nurses Association, the ANA, has estimated that at least 10 to 15% of nurses suffer from a drug dependency, which could amount to around 300,000 addicted nurses. Now, this 10 to 15 percentage is right in line with the incidence of drug addiction with that of the general United States population. However, it is hard to get a truly accurate statistic regarding addiction, as it does go unreported at times. Not many people want to publicly declare that they are addicted to a particular substance, especially not healthcare providers. Now, nurses are important in providing healthcare to patients, especially since that role of being a nurse has expanded and workload has increased over the years. The amount of things nurses are responsible for and the amount of tasks that nurses can perform have changed in an effort to provide high-quality care to patients. But these demands of the profession create high job stress in general. This stress, coupled with ready access to potent medications, can make nurses vulnerable to becoming chemically dependent in order to cope with, well, everything. So not too long ago, it was ER Nurses Week in the United States, and there was an interesting post that circulated that included the following quote, and it said, We as nurses have seen things. We develop our own PTSD whether we realize it or not. And so I think that's what really sparked me to prepare and present this episode. I ended up starting to reflect on my own lists of things I've seen. Patients that have passed, families that have been shattered, friends that cry into my arms as you hold them up. It's a lot to take in all at once, and it's an even greater feat when you continue to keep working after witnessing devastating events in a person's life. When you work in the healthcare system, it's not really a surprise that you encounter colleagues that are way too friendly with their booze or whatever vice of choice outside of work in order to cope with what they see inside of work. But it's a whole different world when they come to work impaired. Now, in addition to seeing shit, rotating shifts and long work hours coupled with easy access to addictive medications set up an ideal situation for nurses to turn to mood-altering substances. To quote Dr. Now regarding Stephen Asante on My 600-Pound Life, this is a very bad situation, a perfect storm of dysfunction. Bless you, Dr. Now, forever and always. Amen. So let's get down to some more truth bombs when it comes to substance use disorder in nurses. Now, many substance abusing nurses use everyday medications encountered in the workplace, as well as common street drugs. The problem may begin by simply taking a patient's medication for headache or back pain or to cope during a stressful shift. As we saw earlier with Karen's case, she just wanted to get some sleep. But this can quickly become something that gets out of control. A substance-abusing nurse may substitute saline for injectable medications such as Demerol, morphine, codeine, or dilute liquid medications after consuming some of it. They have access to it, 
and can take a little off the top, if you will, from their patients' ordered medicines to use for themselves. Now, although some substance-abusing nurses have a history of drug or alcohol abuse, a recent stressful life event, such as a divorce or an accident or illness, can also lead to drug abuse as a coping mechanism. When you have access to it and you can get away with it, what's stopping you from not using it? While there are specific signs and symptoms of a substance-abusing nurse, the impaired nurse may take extra precautions to avoid detection. They might pick up overtime constantly, cover shifts regularly for others, or volunteer to medicate someone else's patient when pain medicine is ordered for that specific patient. They are seen as super helpful, an ultimate team player. Some of the signs and symptoms to look out for, though, are as follows. Changes or shifts in jaw performance. Absences from the unit for extended period of time. Frequent trips to the bathroom. Arriving late or leaving early. And making an excessive number of mistakes, including medication errors. Now, subtle changes in appearance may tend to escalate over time. Could also be an indication that there is a substance abusing nurse in your presence as well as increasing isolation from colleagues, inappropriate verbal or emotional responses, diminished alertness, confusion, memory lapses. See, when nurses are using drugs and are unable to obtain them from a treating healthcare provider, they may turn to the workplace for access or diversion, often causing narcotic discrepancies such as incorrect narcotic counts large amounts of narcotic wastage, numerous corrections of medication records, frequent reports of ineffective pain relief from patients, offers to medicate co-workers' patients for pain, altered verbal or phone medication orders, and variations in controlled substance discrepancies among shifts or days of the week. Now remember that drug addiction is a behavior that affects the brain. It may be the result of an emotional or abusive family situation, a loss of support systems, excuse for behavior, seeking an adrenaline rush, family history of addiction, enabling behavior, unstable lifestyle, denial, or a myriad of other factors. It can impact anyone at any part of their life. And I have said this before, that this is a little bit of a personal topic for me because I just so happen to have an experience with it that I'll share a little bit later. Now, in most cases, the substance-abusing nurse resists entering a treatment program. The main reasons for entering treatment are a court order and peer management and family member encouragement. It is important to have follow-up supervision for physical and emotional support. The length of treatment and the willingness of the nurse are the best predictors for success, as in any treatment program, really. Nurses who remain in treatment for at least a year are twice as likely to be drug-free, but the struggle for recovery will last a lifetime. Impaired nurses can make a complete recovery if given support and opportunity, and they have that desire to recover. But apparently, in Minnesota, there's something interesting going on in regards to their treatment programs for substance use nurses. Michelle McManahan stole her patient's pain medicines so she could use them herself. Diana Bjornberg supported her drug habit by tampering with syringes and putting patients at risk for infection. Catherine Calloway replaced liquid anesthetics with saline, feeding her addiction while leaving patients to suffer. 
They are just three of the 112 Minnesota nurses who since 2010 are licensed to practice despite having either stolen narcotics on the job, fraudulently obtained prescriptions, or practice while impaired by drugs or alcohol. A Star Tribune examination of more than 1,000 Minnesota Board of Nursing disciplinary records has found. Nearly all of those nurses have kept their licenses by taking part in a state program created to protect the public from health professionals who are alcoholics or drug addicts. To avoid further board action, they have to prove that they are sober and getting treatment. Yet records show that nurses have been able to keep practicing while abusing drugs or alcohol, raising questions about whether the program actually works. Nurses can spend months under state monitoring while missing or failing drug tests, disciplinary records show. If they are kicked out of the program, it can take months more for the nursing board to act. Some nurses have been able to use or steal narcotics while enrolled in the program, records show, while others completed the monitoring but later relapsed. Former nurse Sue Qualick said she stole painkillers from St. Paul's Regions Hospital for a year while under state monitoring. She told the Star Tribune, There should have been a red flag for somebody. I don't think I should have gotten away with it for as long as I did. Now, for at least 67 currently licensed nurses, the state monitoring agency, which is called the Health Professional Service Board, or HPSP, has become a revolving door, the nursing board records show. They have failed out of the program only to be sent back by the nursing board and allowed to keep practicing. The HPSP manager, Monica Feidner, acknowledged that the state program isn't foolproof, but she said healthcare professionals with addictions are safer to the public if they are in the program. Quote, being monitored, then you know that they're sober. There are cases where individuals are using, but I like to believe that, that those are few and far in between, end quote. When asked if nurses should lose their license if they take medications meant for patients, Nursing Board Executive Director Shirley Brecken replied, quote, Substance use disorders are an illness. The concern has to be for the safety of the public, but for the future of the individual as well, end quote. Giving nurses who are addicts repeated chances puts Minnesota patients at risk, says Dr. Marvin Sepola, the chief medical officer at the drug treatment center Hazelden. If nurses flout the rules of the state monitoring program, well, I think that they should have their licenses revoked, he said. The only way that these nurses should get their license back is permanent monitoring, and that isn't available in Minnesota. When told of the Star Tribune's findings about the state monitoring program, Governor Mark Dayton said the system sounded very wrong. He said, quote, there should be consequences. Somebody who's using illegal drugs or abusing alcohol or engaging in misconduct or malpractice should understand there's no place for them in the healthcare professions, end quote. The consequences for patients can be devastating when nurses steal drugs from their workplaces. In 2011, 25 St. Cloud hospital patients came down with a bacterial infection after nurse Blake Zenner replaced their liquid hydromorphone, or Dilaudid, with tainted saline, according to the U.S. Department of Justice. A Minnesota Department of Health report said that within two days of becoming infected, one patient died, three required surgeries, and six needed intensive care. In 2010, nurse Sarah Castredo was accused of telling her surgery patient at Abbott Northwestern Hospital to, quote, 
man up instead of giving him pain medication as she had kept it for herself. Now, those cases represent some of the most extreme examples of a growing problem both for employers of nurses and the nursing board. Reports of Minnesota healthcare professionals who have diverted the industry's term for drug theft has jumped 325% from 2006 to 2010. The most recent data available from the Drug Enforcement Administration and State Health Department shows. Healthcare facilities across the state have responded by tightening their protocols to keep track of narcotics. Yet, addicted nurses figure out ways to get them records show. They can override dispensing machines, tamper with medications, get fake prescriptions, falsify reports to hide their thefts, give small doses to themselves that are meant for their patients, or take excess medication that's supposed to be destroyed. Dr. Cipolla goes on to say that nurses have much more access to prescription medication and diversion of those substances than physicians do. It's a major part of their job. They really are at the highest risk for such diversion. Now, the nursing board estimates that about 85% of nurses who admit to diverting have at some point lost their licenses. That's what happened to Zenner and Castrato. Most are given the opportunity to regain those licenses if they prove their sobriety and meet other conditions. Since 2010, the nursing board has licensed 94 nurses accused of diversion or illegally getting prescription drugs, the Star Tribune found. Of those, 71 have no limitations on working with narcotics. Those include nurses like Elizabeth J. Foss, who had a history of drug abuse, being impaired on the job, and allegations that she stole Vicodin for herself and her boyfriend, who was also one of her patients, according to the nursing board record. By the by, real quick, Elizabeth Voss has been impaired at work and stole Vicodin for herself and her boyfriend, who was also one of her patients. Uh, what? I can't even begin to process that. Most of the time, if you have family ties or the like to a patient, you don't even become their nurse. They have a right to privacy, even if you're their significant other, but especially if you aren't legally married. I just, I, I need to calm down. There are flames on the side of my face. Okay, get back into this. All right. So anyways, Elizabeth Foss said in an interview that she has completed treatment and that quote, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody has those days. No, she's not Hannah Montana. She did say though that everybody makes mistakes. I've learned from them and moved forward. When presented with the Star Tribune's finding, Deb Holtz, the state's long-term care ombudsman, responded by saying, that's horrific to me. Side note, how do I get to be an ombudsman? Because that's basically the coolest title I can think of for any profession. Holtz said nurses who have stolen medications from patients should permanently lose their licenses due to the harm that they have caused. Quote, we need to take a look at the language in our state and federal law that enable us to give people second chances and determine if those are actually working to the best benefits of the patients, clients, and residents, end quote. Prescription drug abuse isn't the only addiction that results in referrals for state monitoring. Twice convicted of a DWI, Jane Conroy was a school nurse for South Washington County Schools when in 2011 she drank 8 to 10 shots of liquor one day, then went to work the next day, and provided care to students while under the influence of alcohol. This according to the nursing board. She enrolled in HPSP in March 2012, but was kicked out after submitting three problem screens, 
failing to provide three others, and failing to respond to the program's attempt to contact her. The nursing board allowed Conroy to keep her license and ordered her to go back to the monitoring program in April 2013. Conroy's license was suspended in August after she started drinking again, the board report said. More than 600 healthcare professionals are enrolled in the state monitoring program. That number has grown by 15% in the last five years. About half of them are nurses, making them the largest group of professionals under monitoring. Compared with doctors, nurses are more than twice as likely to fail the requirements of state monitoring, a Star Tribune analysis showed. Fighter, the HPSP manager, I don't know why I said manager so weird, but she's the manager, said that's probably due to two reasons. Nurses work directly with narcotics, and they make less money. She goes on to say, quote, Nurses don't have the same financial resources as physicians to seek treatment, to pay for treatment, to pay for screens, end quote. Even after successful completion of monitoring, which is typically a three-year term, some nurses who handle narcotics can't resist the temptation and relapse. It's like being a kid in a candy store, said former nurse Melissa Ann Moore. Moore said she entered the HPSP in 2006 after stealing powerful painkillers like morphine, fentanyl, and Dilaudid from Unity Hospital in Friedley. I probably didn't say that right. She completed the program after three years, but began diverting again in 2010 while working as a traveling nurse for a dialysis company. According to the nursing board report, she took pain patches off her patients for her own use, abused medication that was supposed to be destroyed, and volunteered to give medication for other nurses, only to use them herself. She diverted from seven hospitals in two years before being caught, according to the report. Moore's license was suspended in February, about 10 months after she stopped stealing drugs. She said the HPSP was a good program, but added, if it had worked, maybe I wouldn't have re-offended. Another nurse, Anne Fleischman, took pain medicines from hospital patients three years after completing state monitoring. Fleischman already had a history of diverting in 1990 when she worked at a Seattle hospital, but she was able to obtain a license in Minnesota in 1994. She stole morphine, Demerol, and fentanyl from intensive care patients while working at St. Louis Park Hospital in 2002 and 2013, used while on duty, and was charged with a felony drug crime, according to the nursing board report. Instead of imposing discipline, the board sent Fleischman to the HPSP, which she completed in 2006. Three years later, Fleischman's supervisors at a hospital in Robbinsdale noted discrepancies in her documentation regarding pain medication. Patients said they had never got the medicine that Fleischman claimed she had given them. She admitted that she had taken the medications for herself, according to the nursing board report. This time, the board suspended Fleischman's license. The board reinstated her license in 2011, then suspended it again two months later after Fleischman failed to contact the monitoring program. Former nurse Gerald Mullins underwent three rounds of state monitoring, but still managed to divert narcotics from his workplaces for 15 years before the board took his license away. Because Mullins self-reported to the HPSP rather than being ordered to do so by the nursing board, nothing in the law required the monitoring program to tell the board about his dangerous conduct. 
That case prompted a nursing board task force to examine the HPSP last year. This task force identified more than 30 issues it had with the monitoring program. During one task force meeting, Judy Reeve, a nursing practice specialist for the board, said that the monitoring protocols for the HPSP that they use are identified as draft and noted that no study of the HPSP has ever been completed and we do not know if the protocols effectively protect the public, this according to the meeting minutes. Another issue identified. The HPSP has to trust what participants, treatment providers, and employers tell it because it doesn't have the resources or authority to do its own investigation. A report said, quote, Licensee may disclose diversion, but no investigation is undertaken to determine whether there was patient harm, end quote. One nursing board member, Deborah Meyer, said during a task force meeting that the HPSP didn't have the ability or authority to protect the public from practice violations. Another concern, the HPSP doesn't report to the board until after three to four problem drug screens, and participants are allowed to skip drug screens too often. One nurse, Dayton D. Carlson, gave three unusable screens, missed seven others, and then tested positive for narcotics in January 2013. He told the nursing board the skipped or unusable screens were intentional because he was using drugs, according to the nursing board report. Carlson, though, remains licensed after completing treatment and telling the board he would stay sober. Fighter said, Claims that the HPSP isn't protecting the public are inaccurate. While no study has been done of the HPSP, she says studies of similar monitoring programs in other states show the programs are effective. And she said steps can be taken to improve state monitoring, including adding another case manager to the program. The five case managers handle about 100 to 120 cases, which is higher than we'd like, she admitted. She also said that the HPSP doesn't just rely on drug screens to determine whether nurses are still using, but also tries to learn that information through reports by nurses, employers, and treatment providers. And she added, even though it may seem absolutely crazy, sometimes when a nurse who has diverted reports to our program and I talk with their supervisor, the supervisor will say, well, they were my best nurse. Being chemically dependent does not necessarily mean being impaired. Still, the nursing board wants to ensure that it's notified when nurses divert drugs. Next year, the legislature is expected to take up a bill that would require employers to tell the licensing boards about diversion cases. The nursing board supports the measure. But even if the bill passes, it does nothing to help the HPSP stop nurses like Qualic who stole and used drugs on the job while under state monitoring. She said it's really easy to get away with. Qualic is 59, of North St. Paul. She got her license in 1986, and a year later began working at hospitals in St. Paul. But she struggled with alcoholism and underwent treatment in 1995. In 2000, while working at Regents Hospital, she said she took Percocet from a patient who didn't want it. She knew it was wrong, but she did it to just see what would happen, and the theft went undetected. Eventually, she became addicted to the excitement of it. She would use daily, and sometimes during her shifts. She left Regents Hospital and went to work for United Hospital, stole drugs, and got caught. She realized she had a problem and entered drug treatment and reported to the HPSP. 
She was hired again at Regions, which she said didn't know her drug history. Qualik successfully completed drug treatment and state monitoring by 2004. She went back to the HPSP in 2007 after she worried she would start diverting again while battling pain from a broken arm. It didn't help. A few months later, the pain drove her to take extra narcotics out of a dispensing machine. Qualik said she could fool the monitoring program by stopping her drug use before doing the tests because she always had a few days' notice. The HPSP requested that she not work with pain medicines, but she said her supervisor at work never heeded that request. The HPSP required updates from her, her supervisor, her doctors, but Qualik called them Mickey Mouse stuff. She said an HPSP case manager never called her while she was being monitored. The people in HPSP ought to do more to make personal contact with their clients. As long as I keep sending in reports, they don't bother me, she would go on to say. After a year of diverting and sometimes daily use, Qualik was caught by the hospital's pharmacy. The HPSP was notified, which referred her to the nursing board. In 2010, the board restricted her from working with narcotics, but allowed her to keep practicing. She later retired in 2012. Though Qualik didn't think she was harming patients because she was stealing from the hospital's supplies, she realizes now that she was wrong. If you're thinking about diverting drugs, maybe I wasn't thinking about my patients as much as I could. The thought that I could be harming my patient bothers me a lot, she says. So this whole article was essentially like verbatim with a little bit of interjections of my own personal opinions from a really good article that I'll link to in the show notes. And there's going to be a lot of links in the show notes to different things regarding substance abuse in nursing and impaired nurses, because, you know, you got to give credit where credit's due. And there's a lot of good facts that I didn't get into this episode. But you also, in this article specifically, you get to see the less than flattering mugshots of some of these nurses. So sometimes, I don't know, I just, I'm one of those people that likes to look at mugshots of people call me crazy, but it's like my favorite thing. Sometimes you're like, well, at least back home, whenever I look at those mugshots, I'm like, do I know somebody? And a couple months ago, I did know somebody in the mugshot lineup. And it was kind of sad because, you know, you go to school with those people and now they're criminals, but it happens. But okay. So anyways, I, I have to ask though, at this point, you're maybe a little frustrated, confused, enraged up until now. How could this happen? How often does this happen? How can this be, right? Well, it can be really, really easy how it gets out of hand for any sort of nurse. And it's not just in the ER. It's not just in long-term care. It goes across the board. And like I said, there's personal stories that have been shared with me. So she was a smarter nurse who floated to ICU, to CVRU, to CCU. She could handle any crisis, balloon pumps, open heart patients, respiratory distress, code blues, anything. Sandy, though, was quiet. She really didn't have any nurse friends. She was a bit of a loner, but we could always depend on her to take the most difficult assignments. She was our brightest star. We delivered our babies two weeks apart from each other. I remember when we both got back from maternity leave, she proudly showed us all the 8x10 pictures of her family and of her new baby, and I felt inferior, like I was a bad mom because I didn't even have pictures. Both of our babies went to the hospital daycare, and every day that we worked together, the daycare would call Sandy on the phone. 
Her baby was frantic and having tremors. Something was wrong. And Sandy would have to leave our ICU and walk to the nursery and hold and rock her baby and breastfeed her. Her baby would eventually sleep into a beautiful, toxic slumber. Now, before the age of computers, narcotics were counted by a day shift nurse and a night shift nurse, which they sort of are still today. Narcotic papers were signed and eventually sent to the pharmacy. Sometimes the numbers didn't add up. Sometimes a morphine ampule would have crystallized gel wrapped around the scoring of the ampule. It was just clear nail polish. Sometimes her patients would have unusually high blood pressure or high heart rates, as if they were in pain. But they couldn't be in pain. Sandy's notes were meticulous and her narcotics were well documented. What we didn't know was that Sandy had been watched by management and by the pharmacy. The pharmacists were aware of the discrepancies, the missing ampules of morphine, the uneven levels of medicine in the Valium vials, or the crystallized solution gluing the top of the ampule to its body. They moved Sandy around a lot. One day she would be in the progressive care unit, the next day to the ICU, the next day to the CCU, and she never complained. She was confident that she had this act of deception down to an art, but all the while she left the trail. The obsession, the perfection of covering her tracks became sloppy, and that's how pharmacy picked up on a trend. Calls from the daycare, her baby screaming, her patients in excruciating pain, but could only express themselves hemodynamically as they couldn't talk since they were on ventilators, restrained, balloon pumps, the whole works. She'd fade in and out from unit to unit, and there was never any eye contact. So imagine our disbelief as we watched as two security guards escorted her out of our ICU. A syringe and a tourniquet found in her scrub pocket. She sobbed and denied ever doing drugs. She denied ever failing to medicate her patients. She denied the fact that her baby was addicted to morphine that flowed through her breast milk. But she tested positive for fentanyl. And still she denied. We were all devastated. How did we miss this? Where was that cry for help? The State Board of Nursing offered rehabilitation. They offered her help. She refused. Eventually, her nursing license was terminated. CPS removed her children. And we never saw Sandy again. The perfect nurse, the perfect mother, hidden by a mask that she wore every day that she clocked in. And just like that, that's how easy it can be. And you see, I'm starting to notice that this episode is getting really long, and I'm realizing it's one that I feel like I might need to revisit at some point in the future, because I haven't even delved into that whole treatment side of things for nurses. And that's a whole nother mountain that I really, really, really need to prepare myself in order to climb with you. I'll work on some follow-up. And I feel like the best way to maybe round out this whole thing is to share with you what happened to me regarding impaired nursing. See, I mentioned before that I have a personal experience with working with a nurse under the influence. And obviously, identifying details were changed in order to protect identities of those involved in this story. But this is the true story of how I worked with a nurse under the influence and how I didn't even realize it. See, Eric, Eric is a brilliant, hardworking, funny, nice, compassionate, and overall amazing nurse. When he graduated from high school, he didn't really set out to become a nurse. He knew he enjoyed science and set out to become a paramedic. 
He accomplished this, and slowly but surely, through interacting with various healthcare providers, he started to think about pursuing a nursing degree. Becoming a nurse and starting work in the emergency room was a dream come true for Eric. Eric then segued his passion for his profession into becoming a travel nurse, and that's how I met him. Eric was a seasoned staple at the hospital I worked at. He would work at our facility for about six months out of the year before going on to his next assignment. Now, when I met Eric, he was this ball of energy that was an amazing and inspiring nurse who was also a great guy that would be a delight to hang out with outside of work. He was active. He loved trail running, hiking, biking, climbing. He was a joy to be with, a joy to work with. He was a nurse that made your shitty shift better because when you saw Eric was there, you knew that no matter how bad it was about to get, he would help out everyone. He would be like a member of your A-team, your Avengers. This was your guy. And this was the Eric I remember fondly in working with him before he left for his next assignment. It was the Eric I look forward to working with the next year. And sure enough, Eric came back the next year and we were overjoyed to have him back. It's like when your family member comes home and you just feel so happy that they're there. Eric's previous contract to us left him somewhat gutted for various reasons. Whatever happened on his previous assignment, he was a little bit different. But we were super excited to be working with him and for him to be working with us. We just loved having him back. Now, hindsight being 2020, the Eric who came back was harboring a secret that would spiral out of control and unravel in real time and shock us all when everything was said and done. The signs were there, but picking up on them was a completely different matter. Eric was the ultimate team player. He always picked up shifts, switched shifts, covered for people. Eric was the first person to ask if he could help out with medicating a patient who had a pain medicine ordered. I remember thinking and thanking him profusely for helping me out with this while I had to help another doctor in another room with a critically ill patient. And he did that for everyone in terms of volunteering to medicate their patients, especially when pain medicine was ordered. You see, pain control is something we had orders to initiate based on our nursing assessment that at the time included giving a patient either Motrin, Tylenol, or if that didn't work, fentanyl, or even morphine. On particularly busy shifts, it helped patients greatly because they were these standing orders that the ER physician signed off for the nurses to initiate prior to a doctor going in and assessing that patient. See, that time between could be almost an hour if it was a really busy day. And if we can get pain control better off for these patients before the doctor came in, that's just going to benefit everyone greatly. Eric was always gung-ho about helping to medicate these patients that had these pain control standing orders initiated on. He was the ultimate team player. Now, on a particularly busy night, the charge nurse for that night had to call out, and Eric was made the charge nurse as he actually had the most experience in the department as the rest of the team was relatively new hires and newer to the hospital. Eric was a mess that night. He started to look pale, and it was hard to find him in the department when ambulances were arriving with patients. By the end of the shift, he was drenched in sweat. He said he was feeling nauseous, like he might be coming down with some sort of virus. We as staff were grateful, but we kept it real with Eric. He looked like crap, and he had been in the bathroom numerous times during the shift. We thought it was best, and he agreed that he needed to rest and recover in order to be back in tip-top 100% Eric shape. 
Now, shortly after this happened, I came into work and walked into a whirlwind of rumors. Eric was scheduled to be at work, but he wasn't there. Great, I figured. We were short-staffed again that night because Eric called out sick. But I was rapidly informed Eric didn't call out sick that day. He had been fired on the spot. I was floored. Why would Eric be fired? I mean, he called out a sick a few times, but he was basically a fixture in our department and helped us keep all of us sane. So what could have happened? And it didn't take too long for the reason to be revealed. That day, Eric was working a mid-shift, and he went to the male staff locker room where the restroom was located. Another colleague walked into the locker room to get ready for work and ended up finding Eric shooting up morphine right there in the bathroom on the toilet. I can only imagine their reactions to seeing each other. See, Eric forgot to make sure the door was closed and locked, and now he's rapidly trying to process that he's been caught in the act. This particular colleague that found him is staring at this nurse, his friend, a member of his work family, as he was holding the syringe that Eric was using to shoot up with. The colleague told Eric that he had to report to the manager with what he just saw, and Eric was defeated. He knew there was no playing this one off in any scenario, and so he joined the colleague in admitting that what he had been doing over the past few months. He was fired on the spot and reported to the State Board of Nursing, who have their own consequences, which I'll get to in a second. When I heard what happened, it was all we can talk about that day at work. How did we miss this? What were the signs that we just played off? What the hell happened to Eric? And so looking back on it, Eric was always the first one to want to medicate patients that were in pain and had these pain meds ordered, of fentanyl and Dilaudid specifically, or even morphine. I remember checking on patients after he initially medicated them, and they would say that the pain meds didn't do a thing to bring down their pain. And so another dose of medication would be ordered, and most of the time, after when I personally medicated them with those pain medicines, their pain was reduced, there was relief in their eyes, and they could finally breathe. Looking back, it's questionable if any of the patients that Eric ever medicated even received a drop of pain medicine, even received anything more than a saline flush through their IV. Eric would always pick up shifts and always seemed to help us out when we were short-staffed, but really, Eric was hedging his bets that when we're short-staffed, that meant that we wouldn't necessarily witness a waste of a narcotic in the med room. It's unfortunate, but it's true, that when you're getting really busy and you need to get meds for another person or if a person is rap or patient is rapidly declining, you just sign off that you witness the narcotic waste for a particular patient's dose of meds, but, but you don't physically observe that nurse wasting the meds when you're in a rush. At least that was the old way of me doing things. Eric knew our department flow well enough to use that to his advantage in order to get access to pain meds. And on that night that he was charge nurse, we figured that he was coming down with a virus, and that's why he kept going to the bathroom and stepping off the unit. But when it comes down to it, he was suffering from withdrawal. And he had just been more and more introverted, less social than the Eric I had initially met. This Eric was not into hiking. He was not into anything. All he wanted to do was seem to be at work. The signs were there, but Eric was such a good person, a good nurse, a good guy, etc., etc., and we were perhaps unwilling to believe that he had this problem. Not Eric. No way. Not here. So he was promptly reported to the Board of Nursing, and they launched an investigation while his license was suspended initially. He wrote statements to the board admitting that he had been frequently abusing fentanyl, morphine, Dilaudid, 
all the while working on his shift. His licenses were revoked in the states that had issued them. He agreed to go to treatment, and after successfully completing the program, he worked to get back to what he had lost. He eventually was able to obtain licensure in another state. As far as I know, Eric's doing good now. He's been clean for years. He's been back to being a nurse for years as well. But he rocked our whole hospital. The initial shock turned into this anger. How could Eric do this? Take advantage of patients in such a way to feed his addiction. But anger subsided eventually. Hospital policies changed and were overhauled completely to better serve patients and protect them. And it changed how I looked out for my colleagues and how I looked out for myself. To this day, I make sure to observe another nurse physically wasting narcotics in real time instead of just taking their word for it, as well as having nurses observe me wasting a med in real time instead of taking my word for it. And maybe the biggest thing I learned was no one is spared in terms of addiction and substance abuse. Not family, not friends, not the nurse that I worked alongside with regularly. And that lesson stays with me and will stay with me forever. So this is a very, I guess, emotionally and personal episode in a way. Maybe this will be a good segue into the rest of the episodes for this year, for this month. I don't know. You know how sometimes I get a little sporadic with my updates in regards to my work schedule, so bear with me on that. But I've done some really cool interviews and collaborations with some awesome people that I cannot wait to start releasing and for you guys to listen to. So it's really exciting really cool stuff coming in to finish off the rest of this year. And I promise they won't be as heavy with the topics as this one is at all times, but it's definitely going to give you different perspectives about nursing and different views within the profession, things that maybe you don't know about that happen behind the scenes, specialties that you don't know about that might pique your interest. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Thanks for listening for another week. Always, always, always feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at PeopleAreWild. Email me, peoplearewildpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for rolling with my schedule changes. Near the end of the year, during the holidays, it gets a little bit more murky. So just bear with me on it. So just take it easy on yourselves this week. Believe in the good. Practice random acts of kindness. And stay safe out there.